You find your seats and turn to Exodus chapter 32. Again, that's Exodus chapter 32. We'll be starting in verse 19. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, starting in verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Let's pray. Dear God, Where we come to this text, Lord, with humility, maybe with questions. Lord, it's one of the passages in Scripture that it's really just hard to read. But I pray that you would not only uh, enlighten our, our hearts, Lord, our minds to the truth of this passage, how it fits in, in the narrative of Exodus and the meta narrative of Scripture, how how this passage is uh, uh, pointing um, not only back to Adam, but forward to Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that we understand those things, but, but God, I also pray that the Spirit would convict us. Lord, where we have made idols in our lives, Lord, where we deny truth, Lord, that's so apparent, Lord, where we sin. That we would see the danger of sin, Lord, for what it's worth that we would turn, Lord, run from it, that we would not make light of the sin in our life, the idolatry in our life, Lord, but that we would turn and run to your grace. God, I pray that there is just practical application in this sermon this morning. In your name, amen. Today we're 
going to pick up where we uh, left off before Easter, of course, in the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 32, the golden calf narrative. And I I just want to remind us before we uh, jump into the sermon this morning that chapter 32, 33, and 34, uh, I've been claiming, are, are the three most important chapters in the entire book of Exodus. Right? It's clear that the author, which... By the way, the author is Moses himself, that the author wants us to pay attention to these three chapters. These three chapters, I believe, really answer the the main question of the book of Exodus. And and that question is, what does it mean that God is Yahweh? What does it mean that God is Yahweh? What does God's name mean? In other words, what is the character of Yahweh? Who is this God? Three weeks ago, we left off with Moses uh, plea to God to not destroy Israel because of their great sin. And because of Moses' prayer, because of Moses' intercession, God showed mercy. In fact, it says God relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. Today, we're going to see Moses come down from the mountain, in fact, commanded by God to go down from the mountain to confront the people and to confront this great sin. In fact, we're going to see three confrontations, and this is going to be the three points of the sermon this morning. First, we see Moses confronts the idol. Second, we see Moses confronts Aaron. And finally, Moses confronts Israel, the people. Those are the three points of the sermon this morning. So let's start with Moses's, Moses confronts the idol. If you would, look at verse 15. Back up a few verses. Look at verse 15. It says this. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. In verse 15, Moses is doing what God commanded him to do, to to go down to the people. And we saw this in Exodus 32, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. Meaning Moses is coming to the people as their mediator. He's coming to the people with the authority of God. Again, verse 15 says this, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. In other words, God himself wrote on these tablets. They're they're very important, and the detailed description uh, makes that clear. These tablets really symbolized and represented the covenant between Israel and Yahweh, between God and God's people. Verse 17, when Joshua heard the noise of the people, let me just stop here because I want to give some context. I want you to visualize and and understand what is going on here. We, We learn in Exodus 24, verse 13, we learn that Joshua actually went up with Moses up the mountain, but he probably stopped somewhere halfway because he wasn't there at the top of the mountain in the presence of God as Moses and God were talking. Therefore, he was waiting for Moses about halfway, and and as he was waiting, Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, Moses on his way down to the people, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Joshua wasn't with Moses, so he doesn't know what's going on down at the camp when God told Moses what was going on down in the camp. 
But one thing was for sure, it was loud. In fact, it was so loud, the noise that the people were making, he just assumes that there was war that was going on at the foot of the mountain. He said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Verse 18, but he, this is Moses, but he said, it is not the sound of um, shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. In other words, it's, it's not war, Joshua. It's not war. It's singing. It's partying. Remember Exodus 32, verse 6. We went over this. It says this, Exodus 2, 32, verse 6. And they, this is Israel, the people, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. This is to the golden calf, right? This, this pagan god. And the, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The word play in Hebrew often, not always, but often has a sexual connotation to it. And I think it definitely has that here. In other words, they ate, they drank, they got drunk, and fornicated. Look at verse 19. It says this. And as soon as he, this is Moses, came near, near the camp and saw the calf, and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. Now, let me point something else out, because all these different pieces of the context here, I think, really paint a story. The, the Hebrew word for dancing is, is actually in the plural form, form in Hebrew, which is somewhat unusual. Therefore, there are some scholars that believe, and I think this is legitimate, that this type of dancing was, was more than just dancing. It was a, a wild and out-of-control type of dancing. And when you, when you add that understanding to the rest of the context, it, it's pretty clear that Israel, as a nation, was out of control, engaged in some kind of gross, sexual, drunken sin in worship of this golden calf. In other words, paganism. In worship of this false god. Therefore, Moses' anger burned hot. Moses had a righteous anger. It was a righteous anger, and the author wants us to see this. It's the same type of righteous anger God had. And the author makes this clear, because look at verse 9. Go back to verse 9, chapter 32, verse 9. I want to show you something real quick. The author is making a connection to the, the anger of God and the anger of Moses. Verse 9 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them. Now go back to verse 19. The author uses the same phrase, Moses' anger burned hot. The author is showing us that, that Moses had the same type of anger as God. In other words, a righteous anger, a, a zeal for righteousness, a zeal for God's glory. We know this is a righteous anger because it, it really doesn't lead to sin, as we will see. In fact, in this whole passage, Moses is the one that's confronting the sin. Here's something that, that you need to know. Most of the time when we are angry, it's not a righteous anger. And whenever you sin in your anger, that is very clear that it's not a righteous anger. If you sin when you are angry, it's not a righteous anger. It's a sinful anger. Moses doesn't sin. He has the same type of 
anger as the Lord. He has a zeal for righteousness that we will see in this passage. Again, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and, and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Again, this was very intentional as we've seen Moses' words and God's words being intentional in this chapter. This was intentional because this was a, a prophetic act. It was a visual symbol of what was happening because of Israel's sin and their false worship, because of their idolatry, the covenant was broken. The covenant between Yahweh and Israel, God and his people, was broken just like the the stone tablets that were thrown on the ground. Then look at what Moses does. Verse 20. He took the calf, this is the golden calf, he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. This again is another prophetic act, another visible, physical symbol of what was happening. Israel wanted to identify, they wanted to connect themselves to this false god, this golden calf. Well, now they're going to drink it. And they're going to taste the bitterness of their sin as they do it. Again, Moses confronts the idol. It's the first point of the sermon. He confronts the idol by completely destroying it. Verse 20, he took the calf, this is the golden calf, he took it, that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder. I think there's a powerful lesson here that we can learn. And it's simply this. Idols are dangerous. They're dangerous. Idols will corrupt you. Idols will destroy you if not confronted. Now, I'm guessing that there are a number of you that might be thinking something like this. Well, I don't worship an idol. In fact, I don't know anyone, any of my friends or family, or anyone that worships an idol. I think this is what many, if not most, modern Christians think. I don't, I don't have a little golden image, in other words, in my house that I bow down to, that I worship. Therefore, I don't worship idols. Well, I want you to listen to what Paul says in, in Colossians 3, verse 5. Paul says this in Colossians 3, verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Did you hear that? Let me ask a question, and don't raise your hand to this one. Have you ever simply coveted something? In fact, if you said, no, I haven't, you you really need to examine your life a little bit more deeply because we have simple hearts that simply covet things all the time. Our hearts are, are so simple. They covet things simply all the time. And Paul says covetousness is idolatry. Paul equates, in other words, the first commandment and the last commandment. 
You shall have no other gods before me, the first commandment, and the last commandment, you shall not covet. In fact, I did a whole sermon on this. If you want to go back and look at the 10th commandment, the sermon I did online, these two, these two commands are related. Listen, when we desire something more than we ought, we are coveting, and that's idolatry. A.W. Pink writes this, Anything which displaces God in my heart, it may be something which is quite harmless or even good within itself, yet, if it absorbs me, if it is given the first place in my affections and thoughts, it becomes an idol. It may be my business, a loved one, or even my service for Christ, and these are all good things. Anyone or anything which comes into competition with the Lord's ruling in a practical way is an idol. And what are we to do with idols? Well, this is what Paul says, put to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In other words, repent from your sin of coveting, turn to God, and make him the treasure of your life. Again, Paul says, put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. And I think we see the example, or this example in our passage this morning, the example Moses gives us, verse 20 says this, he took the calf that that had been uh, made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder. I've studied this passage and commentators argue and, and, and don't even know how he did this. I just think Moses was so determined to completely destroy this, this idol. He was going to ground it to powder any way he could. <laughs> the point is powerfully clear. Moses completely destroyed it, or as Paul words it, he put it to death. Moses confronted the idol by completely destroying it. And we need to do the same as Christians— We need to run from idolatry. We need to run from idolatry with the same type of zeal Moses had when he confronted this idol. Again, this is our first point. Moses confronts the idol, but that's not the only thing Moses confronts in our passage this morning. This brings us to our next point, and that is Moses confronts Aaron. Now, before I read Moses' confrontation with Aaron, I I just want to remind us the context of this passage. It's been a couple weeks and just get our mind wrapped around the story again exodus 25 through 31 is all about the tabernacle which i have tried to point out over and over again is a recreation of the garden it's a recreation of the garden and then exodus 32 especially 1 through 6 is the sin of israel the worship of the golden calf which means if exodus uh, 25 through 31 is a recreation of the garden the tabernacle right the seven days of creation Genesis 1 and 2, that's what this is a recreation of. Then, Exodus 32, the passage we are in, the golden calf narrative, is a recreation of Genesis 3, the fall of mankind, Adam and Eve's sin. The author author of Exodus is is purposely connecting these stories. He, He wrote both. He's purposely connecting these stories. He's pointing us back to the garden. So, here's my question. What happened right after Adam and Eve sinned? I know we've been there a lot, but I want you to turn there. Genesis 3, verse 6. 
We'll be right back in Exodus 32, so keep something there. Genesis 3, verse 6. I want to look at this because there's a parallel that's happening in these passages. And this is familiar to us, Genesis 3, verse 6. It says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Who ate first? Eve. Eve is the one that ate, and then she led her husband and, and gave her husband the fruit to eat. Look what happens next, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Verse 9. But the Lord called to who? Who does he call? He, who does he confront first? Adam. Man. The Lord called to the man. Even though Eve was the first to grab the fruit and eat, even though she led her husband into sin, the Bible consistently blames Adam for the sin of the garden. Eve sinned, don't get me wrong, but ultimately it was Adam's fault. He was to protect. In fact, I've heard theologians, I still don't know where I stand on this, but I've heard theologians say the sin started when Adam let the snake in the garden in the first place. He was to protect, he was to provide, love, lead, and shepherd Eve. And he didn't. Instead, he followed. He followed. Just like Aaron in Exodus 32. Aaron was left in charge as Moses was going up to the mountain. He knew he was going to be gone for an extended period of time, so he put Aaron in charge. Aaron is, is going to be Israel's high priest. He was to, to be their leader, their shepherd. He should have had, had put a stop to the idolatry before it started. When Israel asked Aaron to build an idol, he should have said no. He should have reminded Israel of God's law, of God's goodness and and the goodness of the law that that was given to them he should have led them he should have shepherded them but instead he followed just like adam he followed israel straight into sin but these stories keep paralleling each other so look at verse 9 again it says this the lord uh, god called to the man and said to him where are you and he said I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Listen, God is confronting Adam. Listen to his response. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to, who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree. And I ate. What's Adam doing? He's blame shifting. He's blaming Eve. Now, turn back to Exodus 32, verse 21. Turn
turn back because I, I want you to hear the similarities of, of the response to the confrontation between Adam's response and between Aaron's response. Verse 21, it says this, And Moses said to Aaron, What did the people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. What's Aaron doing? Blame shifting. He's blaming the people. It's their fault. You understand, Moses. You've tried to lead this people. You understand how evil they are, how impossible they are to lead. It's the people's fault. Listen, the author of Exodus wants us to see a connection between Aaron and Adam. That's going to be really important as we continue on in the story. And in a sense, Aaron is a type of Adam. Just like Adam, Aaron failed to lead. And just like Adam... He makes excuses. And his excuses honestly just get absurd, right? Look at verse 23. For they, this is Israel, for they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any of uh, who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Is obviously ridiculous, right? I can't even read through it without you guys laughing. Ridiculous. Listen, I want to be clear because I think this is important. Aaron's confession to Moses, this is a confession back to Moses. Aaron's confession to Moses after being confronted was not repentance. And I think that's obvious, right? Yet, many people within the church respond to sin in a very similar way. In fact, I see it over and over again. So I think it's important that we take a closer look at at Aaron's response. And I want to ask you, as we take this closer look, to examine your heart. Aaron does three things that expose an unrepented heart. First, he tries to act like his sin was not that big of a deal. He tries to act like his, his sin was not that big of a deal, that, that Moses was overreacting. Look at verse 22. It says this, And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Now, now I want you to pay attention to the word Lord. It's not capital L-O-R-D, right? Capital L-O-R-D means that's God's name, Yahweh. Being replaced with the word Lord. Therefore, uh, this is not God's name that's being used here. The Hebrew word that's being used is Adonai, uh, which is a title, not a name. It's a title given to someone. It means Lord or Master. It often, most often, refers to God, but but it also is re- refers uh, of someone addressing a leader, saying like, "My Lord" or "My Master." Therefore, I don't think Aaron is referring to God here. He's referring to Moses. He says, "Let not the anger of my Lord, Moses." burn hot. In other words, he's saying, Moses, don't be so upset. It's not that big of a deal, Moses. I don't, I don't know why you're, you're so angry. I, I just made a mistake. It, it's a small sin. Listen, there is no such thing as a small sin. 
There is no such thing as a small sin. The, the wages of sin is death. That's, that's eternity in hell. The wages for sin is eternal wrath forever. Any sin. In fact, James 2.10 makes that really clear. It says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. If you are in sin, any sin, it's a big deal. Let me just say that again. If, if you are in sin, any sin, it's a big deal. In other words, turn from it. Run from it. Be brokenhearted over it. Run to the grace of God. But whatever you do, don't act like it's not a big deal. Don't act like it's just a small sin. Don't downplay your sin because that is a sure sign of an unrepented heart. Aaron had an unrepented heart. He acts like his sin is not that big of a deal. And it just exposes it. But there's a second sign that Aaron's heart was unrepented. And that second sign is something I've already pointed out. He blame shifts. Not only does he say it's not a big deal, but he doesn't take responsibility of the sin. Look at verse 22 again. It says, And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron blame shifts. It's not my fault, in other words. It's the people's fault. In fact, I think he's somewhat blaming Moses here. Moses, if you would have come back early, they wouldn't have said this. You're the one that was in delay. They freaked out. It's not my fault. It's the circumstances. It's the circumstances I found myself in. Anyone would have sinned the same way I did in these circumstances. Let me ask a question. I've asked this question a number of times. Who are we ultimately blaming when we blame our circumstances? Who are we ultimately blaming when we blame other people for our sins? Who was the one that kept Moses up the mountain for so long? It wasn't Moses' idea. We're blaming God. Because he's sovereign over our circumstances. He's sovereign over the people he puts in our lives. Remember Adam's response to God after he was confronted. Verse 12 of Genesis 3 says this. The, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. He wasn't blaming Eve. Who was he blaming? God. You're the one that gave her to me. Listen, whenever we are unrepented, whenever we are making excuses for our sins, we are ultimately blaming God for our sins. We are blaming God. Listen to this. We are blaming God for our rebellion against God. That's why being unrepented over your sin is just so much more horrible than just being sinful. We are blaming God for our rebellion against God. 
Just pause and reflect on that for a second. Just think about it before you blame your spouse for your sins. In your heart. Think about it before you blame a, a co-worker for your actions. Before you blame your children for your actions. Think about it be, before you blame other people in the church for your sins. Whenever you blame shift, you are, you are just ultimately blaming God. Because who put those people in your life? brings me to a third way we know Aaron's heart is unrepented. He just flat out lies. Again, it's just ridiculous. It, verse 24 says this, so I, this is Aaron, so I said to, to them, Israel, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I, I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. It's ridiculous. It's, it's laughable, right? not just a, a lie, it's a ridiculous lie. Because back in verse 3, the narration of, of this, meaning this is what happened, uh, it says this, so all the people took off their rings and, of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool. He didn't just fashion it, he used a tool to fashion it, and made a golden calf. In other words, this wasn't some supernatural event. He just threw gold in there, out came this calf, so we had to worship it. He made this golden calf, obviously. He just lied about it. But I've thought about this passage all week, and and there's something that's just kind of scary about it. And I'm just guessing here. I don't think the the text necessarily gives a clear indication of what was going on in, in, in in Aaron's heart and brain when this happened. So I'm guessing here, but, but I think Aaron actually believes this lie. I mean, think about it. At some point, as he's making this golden calf, Aaron knew he was going to have to tell Moses what had happened. He knew Moses was going to come back. He was going to be confronted by Moses, and he was going to have to tell Moses something. Therefore, he bent the truth, it's close to the truth, but then far off from the truth, he bent the truth in his own heart to justify his actions. And I'm guessing he rehearsed this lie over and over and over again in his heart, in his mind, so he had it down when when Moses came in, and, and he did this to a point that I'm guessing he started to believe it. Now, this is an educated guess because it's human nature. We do this. We will believe ridiculous lies to justify our sins. This is why when you talk to people about subjects such as abortion or transgenderism, it just can be dumbfounding, right? Almost unbelievable, some of the things people say. I mean, simple truths like abortion is murder, or if you are born a man, you are a man, are rejected. Listen, It's because they have actually started to believe the lie. This is what a debased mind is. Romans 1 verse 28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, this is Aaron in Exodus uh, 32, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
And I use those extreme examples, but, but I want you listen. I don't know how many times I've confronted people, even Christians, who can't see their sin. This means this is a danger for all of us. Don't, don't think of non-Christians outside of this wall. Look at your own heart. This is our danger. People that have rehearsed a lie in their heart so many times that they start believing it. It's a scary place to be because up becomes down, down becomes up, right becomes wrong, wrong becomes right. I've had a a number of times people come to my office or one of the offices of the pastors and say, uh, God has told me I should get a divorce. That's a lie that someone started to believe. Aaron, in his heart, was suppressing the truth, and he did it so much that he actually started to believe the lie, a ridiculous lie, that he threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. Listen, this is why we need each other, by the way. One of the ways God sanctifies us is each other. Not just in the fact that we sin against each other and that helps sanctify us, but but that we confront each other when we are in sin. To help us see when we are blinded by our own sin. To help us see when we're, we're, we're believing our own ridiculous lies. This is why Aaron needed Moses so badly. I mean, Aaron's a, a believer in the Old Testament. I mean, he's someone that's, that's going to be in heaven when we get there. He needed Moses to point out his sin. Because, and, and this is important, even though I think Aaron's sins ultimately will be forgiven, they had some devastating consequences. Listen, although Aaron, through his sin, thought his sin was not that big of a deal, it was. It was a big deal. The consequences of Aaron's sins were devastating. This brings me to the last point. Moses confronts Israel. Look at verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your swords on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. 3,000 Israelites were killed, put to death by their own relatives, the Levites. This was the result of Israel's sins. It was tragic. Tragic. But this leads to a question, and I'm guessing many of you, if not most of you, if not all of you, are asking or asked when we read through this passage, why would God have Moses do this? It's clear Moses was obeying God, because look at verse 27, it says, and and he said to them, thus says the Lord God. In other words, this came from God. 
Moses came with the authority of God. This came from God of Israel. Put your sword on your side, each of you. This was God's command. But why? Especially since he has already told Moses that he was not going to destroy Israel. He was going to show Israel mercy. We we went over this already. Exodus 32, verse 14. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So why would God have 3,000 men put to death? It's actually a hard question to answer, and there's all types of guesses, but but what I want to do real quick is just point out a few things that I think will help us understand this a little bit better. First, even though 3,000 is a lot, and I'm not downplaying that, that's a lot. It was actually a small fraction of the the size of the people of Israel, probably or upwards to 600,000 men, maybe even 2 million people. But a lot of people, meaning 3,000 is a small fraction of the, the Israelites as a whole. Still devastating, though. So, so the second thing I want to point out is this, and, and I think this is really important. I don't think Exodus 32 is, is in chronological order hard for some of us to grasp. It's not in chronological order. Instead, I think it's in thematic order. What's that mean? I think the confrontation of Aaron probably happened after the death of the 3,000 men. I believe the author switches the order of events because he was emphasizing right, thematically Aaron's role in the sin. He wanted to get a point across, in other words. He was, he was making much of Aaron's failure as a leader. And, and we see that very clearly in verse 25. Look what the author says in verse 25. And, and when Moses saw the people had broken loose, and the author makes this comment, he wants, he wants you to really understand what's going on. For Aaron had let them break loose. In other words, just, just in case you, you forgot, don't forget. This is Aaron's failure. In ancient literature, and again, this is hard for us to grasp, in ancient literature, chronological order was not super important. It was important, most things are chronologically in order, but not super important, like it is for us. What's more important in ancient literature was getting the point across, so thematic order. You actually see this a lot in scriptures. Authors will will put things out of order. You see this in the Gospels often. Put things out of order chronologically to make a point thematically. Again, this is hard for us because in Western civilization, in in modern America, how we write stories, if we put stuff out of order chronologically, it seems like we're trying to hide something or lie. That was not the case in ancient literature. People weren't reading this to, to get the chronological order. So the confrontation of Aaron is put first, not because it happened first, but because it was the most important confrontation Moses had. Therefore, the death of the 3,000 men was probably one of the first things Moses actually did when he came down the mountain. Why? Why would he do this? Well, this is the third thing I want to point out, and I think the author is over and over and over again is showing us something. Look at verse 25 that says this. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose. The Hebrew word here that's translated broken loose means something like running wild. In other words, two million people are out of control. When you add this to the context of the passage so far, Israel was a drunken mob. 
something drastic had to happen to stop this, stop what was going on. Therefore, Moses said, as he came down the mountain, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side. Apparently, the majority of the Levites weren't participating in the paganism. That doesn't mean that they didn't worship the golden calf or they weren't in sin. But when Moses called the people to come to the Lord's side, the sons of Levi gathered around him. They turned, in other words, from this awful sin and, and, and came beside Moses. Which brings me to the last thing I want to point out. This is a really hard passage, right? Some of those passages you read in Scripture and go, wait, what happened? This is a really hard passage, but I want to be crystal clear. The death of the 3,000 men is exactly what they deserved. In fact, it's what all of Israel deserved. Remember, Israel agreed to the stipulations of the covenant. They knew the stipulations. They said, we will, we will obey that. That's what we want. And in the book of the covenant, it says this, Exodus 22, verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. In other words, Levites were tasked to administrate justice for two purposes. First, I believe, to g- gain control of the nation. The nation was out of control, and this is, this is what was needed to bring them back into control. But second, to purify Israel. The worst offenders, the leaders of this drunken mob, this fornicating party that was going on and worship of this false god were put to death. And listen, the the Levites were commended for their obedience. They were commended for their obedience. Look at verse 29. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. I mean, this is a hard passage, but it was way more of a hard task that was given to the Levites. But it was a necessary one. One commentator put it this way. By displaying their complete opposition to sin, the Levites had virtually been installed into the office that the Lord had designated for them. This was the reward the Lord would bestow on them for their faithfulness. Listen, I, I'm thankful that there's a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, God's people were given the sword to administrate justice. They were to put to death people for certain laws that were broken in the Old Covenant. In the, in the New Covenant, the church doesn't wield the sword, physical, just this one, thankfully. That has been given to the government. I, I'm thankful for that because... This is a hard task, obviously, but, but listen. Confronting people 
when they are in sin, is a hard task. It's a hard task, but we have been called to be obedient to it. And if they won't listen to you, we are called to bring another. Out of our love, because the consequences of those sins could be devastating. And if they won't listen to to two, we, we are to bring them to the church. If they won't listen to the church, we are to let them know that they are acting like an unbeliever and we are to declare them one. You know how hard that is? <laughs> it's so hard. But we're called to be faithful. We're called to do the hard things. Out of our love for that, that person, out of the purity of the church, we're called to do that. So if you have someone, a brother or sister in the church that's in sin, you need to let them know. You need to confront them. This passage is a hard reality. Again, I'm thankful we don't have the sword. It, it, God uses the priest of Israel and, and put to death 3,000 men for the good of Israel as a whole. But listen, we've we got to understand that this is a consequence of sin. It's death. The wages of sin is death. This is where sin leads. Death. In our passage, Moses did what he needed to do. He came down the mountain. He confronted the idol by completely destroying it. He confronted Aaron as as the leader. And he confronted the Israelites. And because of their sin, 3,000 men were put to death. And I think this leads to one last powerful lesson. It's just simply this. Sin has consequences. It has consequences. This is what one commentator put. Sooner or later, God will confront our sin, just as Moses confronted the Israelites. Out of his great mercy and out of of the basis of the covenant, God had already decided not to destroy the Israelites. In other words, this is God's grace on his people, God's mercy. However, their sin still needed to be dealt with in a godly way. And this meant that they were going to have to face its consequences. This is always necessary. Forgiveness removes the guilt of sin, but not its consequences, nor should it. God uses the consequences of our sin in a sanctifying way, teaching us never to do the same thing again. It's a powerful lesson. The lesson is that we need to deal with the sin in our lives. We need to deal with any idols that are in our lives. Don't downplay it. Don't don't use God's grace, in other words, if you're a Christian, don't, don't use God's grace as a means of justifying your sin. Because even if you are truly a Christian, meaning your sins that that you're committing, that you're downplaying, will be forgiven, even if that's the case, listen, unrepented sin will destroy you. Idolatry will destroy. It will destroy your testimony. It will destroy your relationships. It will destroy you, if not turned from. 
Therefore, turn from it. That's the lesson. Run from it. Have the same spirit and zeal as Moses. Confront your sin like Moses and turn and run to God's grace. Because it's destructive. Confront your sin and turn to God. thank you for our passage this morning. I thank you, Lord, for the example of Moses. The the boldness, the the faithfulness to, to come to the people that he loved. To come to so many people that were out of control to to do what was necessary for, for their good and for your glory. The hatred of idolatry and sin the zeal to destroy it in the lives of the Israelites. God, I pray we have that same spirit, Lord. That we individuals, Lord, me personally, that when I see sin in my heart, Lord, that I, that I would turn and run from it. When I see idolatry in my heart, Lord, that I would confess it and put you in your proper place, Lord, king of my life, lord of my life. I pray we as a church are known for treasuring you, for worshiping you. That we would, out of love, gently correct a brother or sister when they are in sin. That we would look at ourselves first and take the log out of our own eye, Lord, before we take the speck out of our brother's. But I pray that's the spirit in our church, Lord, in your son's name.